0: God because David was a man after God's own heart and here we see something of God's heart as our shepherd Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not be in want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul he guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And just having read your word we have benefited from hearing it because in your word is power. Father, be with me as I lift up your word, as I as I look deeply into what your word tells us about you. And may your word pierce our hearts. And may we leave this place having been changed by it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some years ago there was a story that circulated in the media about a young man who, uh, a security guard at a Los Angeles bus terminal saw this young man, he's about five feet, uh, skinny, weighed about 87 pounds. And he was wandering around the bus station. And the security guard thought he looked a little out of place. And so he came alongside him, He, he asked him what his story was, and that story, once it was discovered, circulated through the news and became nationwide news. This boy, this teen from Dallas, Georgia, related the story that shocked the officer and shocked the world. Since eighth grade, the boy had been kept at home in a tiny room by his stepfather, fed meager amounts of food so that he was emaciated. And by the time that he was 18, his father decided, his stepfather decided, Well, it was time for him to be a man, quote-unquote. So he gave him $200, some bus fare, and a list of homeless shelters he could find once he got to Los Angeles. And he sent him to Los Angeles on a bus, tired of this stepson being a dependent. It's a sad story. It's a concerning story. I wish it were the only time we ever heard of such stories in our world, but it seems like these kind of stories circulate all the time, stories of neglect, stories of pain, stories of even family members, even stepfathers and stepmothers wounding their stepchildren, stories of fathers, mothers, sons and daughters who turn against one another, stories of brokenness. Not only in families, but if you turn the news on last week, or you watch it at all, we're deeply divided. And such division can bring us pain. When difficulty comes to us, life stories of pain and neglect can affect our faith. There are times in our lives when we're going through difficult situations that we Begin to get a wrong perception of who God is, and we may begin to think of him like that stepfather. We may begin to ascribe to him things that are not true of him because our emotions are so powerful. Surely we've been forgotten. Surely we've been neglected. Surely I've done something to cause him to push me away, and he won't be coming after me. And we silently wonder whether God is going to let us face the hardships of life alone, like that young boy did. And we can begin to believe that God grows weary of our dependence upon him. And these feelings come out in unbiblical phrases like God helps those who help themselves. But that's not the gospel at all. And such well-worn phrases couldn't be further from the truth. The truth is that God wants us to completely Depend upon him. And that's what David's hinting at here in in Psalm 23. The sheep don't go on their own recourse. Sheep are animals that need to be led. I'm not going to say sheep are dumb. A lot of people say that. They are dumb. We can be dumb, but they're trusting and they need to be led. They need the dependence upon the shepherd. They need the dependence upon the good shepherd. And David reminds us of that in Psalm 23 when he says in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He's telling us that the Lord is our faithful shepherd. I shall not be in want simply means that God will not treat us as the stepfather treated the the boy from Dallas, Georgia. He doesn't leave us malnourished. He, He doesn't leave us unprotected in a world that would seek to destroy us. Instead, I shall not be in want means that God will be faithful to us. And David bookends the psalm by returning to God's faithfulness in in verse 6 when he says, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David frames God's faithfulness in all of life even into death. His goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. That's a Romans eight twenty eight promise that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever is a Romans 8, 39 promise that goes like this. For I am convinced that I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once David has reminded us that God is a faithful shepherd, he tells us how God faithfully shepherds us. These two aspects of God's shepherding are seen in verse 4 when he says your rod and your staff comfort me. The staff is a, is an instrument of leading. It's when those sheep begin to go the wrong way and it has the hook on the end so he can pull them back from a precipice or from somewhere that they don't mean to go so he can guide and tend them well. The rod is for defense from when the wild animals come to attack. So we are we are to To sense that safety and that protection in how he tends us and how he defends us. So, first, he faithfully tends us. How do we see that here? How does he faithfully tend us? Well, three things here he leads us to rest, he leads us to redemption, and he leads us to righteousness. Where am I getting that? Well, first, he leads us to rest. Go back to the image of the abusive stepfather locking his stepchild away in a room, barely enough food to live, barely enough water to survive, and let the thought here that the Lord makes us lie down in green pastures contrast against that. Verse 2 says he makes us to lie down in green pastures, and that that is a statement of rest. He doesn't make us lie down in the desert. He doesn't make us lie down in the dirt. He makes us lie down in green pastures because not only is he calling us to rest, he's calling us to nourishment and to be fed. In Israel's history, the Israelites of the Exodus ascribed to God something that wasn't true in their own frustration. When they came out of Egypt and they came into the wilderness, immediately they said, has God brought us into the desert to die? And they kept repeating that. God's brought us out of Egypt because he hates us and he wants us to die. And Moses is trying to tell them that that's not who their their God is. That is not God's heart for them. And so he even feeds them in the desert with the manna and he feeds them miraculously through the water from the rock. Rest is God's idea. Provision is what God is going to do for us. He's a sovereign God, and we rest in his sovereign care for us. Even rest is baked into creation. Before the fall even came, God calls us to one day of rest. He calls us to set aside time to physically rest, but also to spiritually focus on who he is, to be refreshed. Sometimes we get weary, not from doing, but sometimes we get weary From trying to control our own situation. Trying to manipulate our lives. Trying to make sure it goes a certain way. And God makes us lie down. He calls us to rest. And he reminds us that we're the sheep. We're not the shepherd. We're not called to drive our own lives. He drives the will for our lives. And we can trust him because he is a good shepherd. Sometimes he loves us so much that he puts something in our way to slow us down, to make us, because sometimes we have to be made to lie down in green pastures. Sometimes we want to eat the dust, but he calls us to eat of the grass. To show our great need for us and our great need for Christ, he calls us to rest. But then he leads us to redemption. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that Sabbath rest? It's referred to in verse 3 when he says, he restores my soul. Now, God restores our soul through a whole lot of things. The reading of his word, prayer, the encouragement of others. But the ultimate restoring of our soul is when he brings us from death to life. When he brings us to redemption, And when he brings us to redemption, he reminds us of that redemption through the cross of Christ. Because as we go through our day, as we go through our life, that identity that we are his, that we're not stepchildren, we're adopted children, we're not not Cinderella's locked away, we're adopted and beloved kids of the king. And that identity gets easy to lose as we go through the day as we live in a fallen world, because people tend to put labels on us. I have a, my, my daughter, my youngest daughter has this habit of peeling the labels off bananas and sticking them under our counter, and I didn't realize that till one day I was under the counter doing something, and I saw all these labels just underneath the counter, and I, I was talked to my wife about it, and I was like, well, I'm gonna remove those, and she said, no, that, that's her, she loves that, she loves it, it's her hobby, just let her do it. It doesn't bother you. But I was remarking that these labels And I'm thinking about how often we go through the world and we get those labels every single day from the world. Hater. Ignorant. Worthless. And I don't think how often, I don't think we think often about how much we accumulate that. And we let those things weigh us down. And we let those things identify us. We let the world identify us. We let the world tell us who we are, and we lose that sense of identity. And the core of a fear here is that we aren't truly accepted by the Father and that we're worthless. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The cross is a testimony to the fact that he gives us worth by the blood of Christ on the cross. He seeks to restore our souls through that. He brings us back to the cross time and again, to our redemption again and again, to remind us that whatever identity we're trying to strive in, whatever identity that the world wants to stick labels on us for, those things aren't true of us. Who we are is we are his and we are made worthy by his blood even on the days we feel like the stupidest person in the room or we couldn't have goofed up whatever it was any worse than we goofed that thing up god reminds us that he died for that his son died for us and we're beloved no matter how Those around us seek to wound us and label us. He restores our soul when our souls feel dry and arid. But third, he leads us to righteousness. He says in verse 3, He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And this is where things can get a little disjointed because we need the context of grace. He guides us in paths of righteousness so I can remain in his fold. That's not what it says. He guides us in paths of righteousness so I can, because I'm a wonderful sheep. No. Christ's motivation for empowering us to do righteous things by the Holy Spirit is solely for the glory of God. We did not do anything to be saved. Christ did everything to be saved. And we are accepted on that basis alone. And it is for the glory of God that Christ laid down his life for us. But it is once we realize that, and once he empowers us by his Holy Spirit, that he begins to work in us what is righteous. He begins to turn us from selfishness to center on the glory of God, to self sacrifice. He turns us from self abasement or self hatred, he doesn't want that either he turns us to, to, to towards a right understanding of who we are in Christ. And he works in our heart to, to move us from self-sabotage and self-centeredness toward truly and fully walking with Christ and in step with the Holy Spirit. The thing about being a pastor is you get to see a lot of these stories. And, and sometimes we see them in the form of testimonies of what God has done in the lives of people. I've seen addicts become believers in Christ and walk away from addiction. I've seen very self-centered, narcissistic people be broken by their own narcissism and turn to Christ and submit themselves to him. I've seen broken marriages healed The work of the Spirit in us cannot be minimized. He will address the dark things of our soul. He will address the sin that we we struggle with. He will address our self-centeredness. And he will address our self-destruction. And he has the power. The God who, who spoke into existence the universe has the power to change our hearts and to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power of the faithful shepherd who leads us, who leads redeemed hearts to respond righteously to another's unrighteousness. To do what sounds crazy to the world, to turn the other cheek, to forgive. As Christ leads us into rest and brings us to redemption, he begins to transform our hearts. And these things, these ways that we live differently than the world, magnify and glorify God. It points to a different reality. But at times, being his sheep brings with it a list of enemies, which brings us to the second way that our good shepherd is faithful. He faithfully defends us. We get that from verses 4 through 5. Now, we return to the news story one more time of the young man who's been sent away by his stepfather. He gives him $200 and a list of homeless shelters. And in his weakened condition, he tells him to go fend for himself. But he's walking around a bus terminal in L.A. of all places where he's susceptible to being beaten, to have that $200 taken away. He doesn't have the strength to fight. And yet the security guard comes along and takes him under his wing and cares for him. Our own weaknesses leave us open and vulnerable. But David reflects on his time as a shepherd, and he realizes that God would do no less for his sheep than David would do for his own. Let me say that again. God would do no less for his sheep than David would do for his own. And realizing that gives David a sense of comfort and security that God will defend him. In verse four, David comes to the conclusion that that God is his defender. He doesn't need to fear evil, and he lists three different types of evil in this passage. First, he defends us from the fear of the enemy. In verse 5, he writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, David writes enemies, but I use the singular enemy because we understand that our great enemy, our enemy is not flesh and blood, our enemy is Satan himself the accuser of the brethren who breathes out lies against us, breathes out lies about God, making us believe God's love is a conditional thing. He's the one that, that though God testifies otherwise, whispers lies like, you've gone astray and God's going to leave you there. He's not coming back. But his word tells us the truth, that he leaves the 99 and he pursues the one. That's the kind of God he is. And he defends us from the fear of that kind of enemy. Because Satan wants wants us to fear. But it's not a fair fight. If you've seen those those arm wrestling pictures on Facebook where where Satan is, is arm wrestling Jesus, I hate those pictures. It acts like it's a fair fight. It's not a fair fight at all. Remember what Jesus said to Peter. Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, you plural, meaning you disciples. But when you, you singular, Peter, have returned, gather together the brothers. Jesus isn't wringing his hands, going, "You know, I think Satan may have a plan here, and, and you, you need to watch out, Peter. I don't know what he's going to do." No, Peter, Peter knows what what Jesus that Jesus is all powerful. That that, that Satan has to even ask to sift him as wheat. Scripture tells us that our God is stronger. Our king is stronger. And we need not fear an enemy. And we must devour this truth. We must devour this truth. We must feast on this in the presence of our enemies. That he prepares a table of truth. And we must feast on that truth no matter what the world wants to make us believe and what at times we feel Truth speaks louder than that. The enemy can never have you if you belong to Christ. You're held in his hands, and he will fulfill his promises. But he doesn't just defend us from the fear of the enemy. He defends us from the fear of dark situations. Look at verse 4 again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm sure if you're reading that psalm that that is the a phrase that your heart gravitates towards why because we've all walked we've all walked through dark situations you may be going through one now i know our country is i know our nation is and we're feel, feeling the fear and we're feeling hopeless and we're feeling depressed but there are individual situations that we walk through and we we begin to start Thinking through these things and, and those lies from, the, from Satan begin to come to us. And we begin to doubt and we say, well, if God is real, shouldn't I, should I have to really walk through pain and suffering? I mean, if he's real, shouldn't I have to, shouldn't I not walk through this? Shouldn't he provide a way for me out of the pain and the suffering? And I understand that reasoning. It's powerful, but it is a powerful lie. God doesn't promise that we won't face difficult Things. 2020 was a difficult year. 2021 is, is not started great, let's be honest. God didn't promise that we wouldn't have trouble in this world. He says it over and over from, from Genesis to Revelation. You're going to have tribulation in this world. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He says you're going to be persecuted, but I will be with you. His promise is that he won't leave us. And it's hinted at here in the psalm. I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're with me. And there are times when we let our fear color our perceptions of God's goodness because of the activity in our lives, the things that are going wrong. This idea is powerfully illustrated in C.S. Lewis's story, A Horse and His Boy, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia that tells the story of a slave boy who, uh, with his talking horse, Runs away from his cruel master. And through a series of difficult uh, difficulties and misfortunes, he finds himself on a dark road, pitch black. And he notices that something has moved up beside him. And he feels it in the darkness. And he begins to have a conversation with this thing. And this is what happens next. It says, Shasta told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fisherman, And how he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all of their dangers in Tashban, and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erevis, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Do you think that I, it was bad luck for? Don't you think it was bad luck for me to meet so many lions? Shasta asked. There was only one lion," said the voice. "What on earth do you mean? I, I've told you that there were at least two the first night, and there was only one lion. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erevis. I was the cat who comforted you. among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals while you slept. I was the lion that gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion who you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay near death so that it came to a shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. It's such a beautiful picture of where Christ is when we're suffering. Such a beautiful picture of how we paint all those things as bad things in our lives, and yet we don't realize Christ is working all things together for the good of those who love him. In his ultimate glory, Counting our misfortunes causes us to miss even the reality of God's presence and His goodness to us in the midst of that misfortune. His promises that He would never leave us nor forsake us. And knowing He is with us gives us the courage to walk ahead, even though the way might take us through something very, very difficult. What is going on in your life right now? What are you struggling with? What is the darkness that you face? Are you tempted to say, where is God? God is there. And God is working in ways that you you might not see or understand or comprehend. Till the day that you see him in heaven, sit down with him and he can explain to you, much like Aslan explained to Shasta, here's where I was and here's what I was doing and you just didn't see it. But we have his promise that he's there. The shadows are imposing, but there's no Shadow more imposing, perhaps, than death. And so we come to the very last thing that that he defends us from, and that is the fear of death. Christ came and conquered death through the resurrection. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And though people still die, and we've experienced that as a country, we've experienced that as a world more than than we've seen in in a year, for those who trust in Christ, he has removed the sting of death so that we would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we need not fear when that day comes. It says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It's an expression of joy. David's joy isn't dependent on his situation, and it isn't dependent on whether he lives or dies. It's dependent upon knowing God. God, and being his. That's Paul's joy as he suffers in prison, whether he should stay and help the church or go to his greater joy of being with the Lord. And for those of us who know Christ, death need not be something we fear. For Christ will be with us even then. And the good shepherd will lead us down that valley of the shadow. And this psalm testifies to Christ that that chief shepherd, he is faithful. He will continue to, to tend us and defend us in life and in death. There's an old catechism of the church that sums up what we're talking about today beautifully, better than I ever could. And I want to read that as we close today. The question is this: What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is beautiful, that I belong body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all of my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let us continue on in that faith as we follow the lead of our good shepherd, the one who tends us faithfully and the one who defends us faithfully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in uncertain times. We live in an uncertain world. And I don't know all the situations in this room. I don't don't know all the the lies that that our hearts entertain or that the hearts in this room entertain, but I do know your truth. And I know who you are. And I know who I am. And I know the temptation is to believe that we're alone and that we're neglected and we're abandoned, but your word speaks such a deeper truth. You are with us. You're with us in the valley of the shadow. You're with us on the mountain. You will tend us faithfully, Lord, and you will defend us faithfully, Lord. Help us in our moments of doubt, cling to what you have told us in scripture. And not only what you have said, but what you have done by sending Christ as a sacrifice for us so that he can secure our eternity and we may be assured that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Nourish our hearts and restore our souls as we sing praise to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.